The Weather Lounge podcast is brought to you by Crew Tracker Software. This is the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Hi there, everyone, and thanks for stopping by the Weather Lounge. I'm your host, meteorologist Brad Miller, and this latest podcast comes to you from our Weatherworks headquarters located in Hackett Sound, New Jersey, and made possible by Crew Tracker Software. And joining me as always here in the Weather Lounge is my co-host, meteorologist Mike Mahalik. Hey there, Mike. Hey, Brad. Great to be here as always. Yeah, and uh, we're going to get right to uh, the podcast today because we've got a very special guest. Uh, it's a pleasure mm-hmm. and opportunity uh, to chat with him today. And he's a very well-known television meteorologist in the Philadelphia area, Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. And I know you kind of grew up watching him, right, Mike? I'm yeah. out of more central Jersey. I was more the New York kind of right. uh, area that I watched, but you were there in eastern PA. Yeah, I, I was living in uh, Eastern PA in the Lehigh Valley. I watched him for years on NBC 10 um, out of Philadelphia. And I've got to say, NBC 10 was probably one of my go-to stops, you know, because at that time I wasn't, you know, versed. Uh, I didn't go to college yet, you know, mm-hmm. for meteorology. So I was looking, where's that trusted source? You know, where can I find the best forecast? So I always seem to go back to NBC 10. And I'm positive that I watched him uh, during the uh, blizzard of 96. Um, That was one of my top winter storms. (laughs) He always had his signature uh, bow tie going on. Um, So we'll ask him about that uh, very shortly. But before we meet Glenn, let's take a short break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Since 2004, Crew Tracker Software has enabled snow and ice management companies to save time, money, and resources with their comprehensive digital services platform. All the information needed to plan your operations and make business decisions is current and always available. Along with QuickBooks, Crew Tracker Software provides seamless integration with Weatherworks certified snowfall totals. Visit CrewTracker.com to rock your game and learn how Crew Tracker Software makes managing snow and ice simple. Take advantage of the SIMA Show Special $500 discount and White Glove Startup Service offer. All right, and welcome back to the Weather Lounge. And again, we have a very special guest today. His name, I'm sure you've heard of it, Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. He's been a meteorologist for 50 years, and he's been on television providing the weather for 42 years. He recently retired from NBC 10 in Philadelphia, where he's forecasted there for 27 years and is now part of the Philadelphia Broadcast Hall of Fame. Glenn, welcome to the Weather Lounge, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invite. Glad to yeah, be. It's, uh, I'll tell you, it's, uh, I, I mean, of course, you know, I was, again, I mentioned this earlier, I grew up in Central Jersey. You were definitely a go-to for the Philadelphia. Cause I got I got all the television markets in, in Central Jersey. I had Philly, I had New York. I remember jo- Dr. Frank Field. I remember Lloyd Lindsay Young on WOR, and of course, I remember Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. <laughs> Yeah, I worked in New York uh, for a few years, so uh, I'm familiar with some of those folks up yeah. there. So. so tell us where where you went to Penn State. Is that correct? Uh, we're going way back, of course, right. to your to your roots here. Yeah, I um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and ended up going to uh, Central High, which was also where Joel Myers. Mm. President of AccuWeather and Elliot Abrams, the vice president of AccuWeather, mm-hmm. went mm-hmm. a little bit earlier. So then one high school is, was responsible for all three of us. Wow. How about that? Um, 
yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of those names, and there and there always seems to be, you know, some of those go-to meteorologists. I remember listening to Doctor Doctor Joe Sobel, yeah, on the on the radio uh, up in the Lehigh Valley, and I think he was based out of AccuWeather too. Yeah, and it turned out that after Penn State. I had applied to the government, to the weather service, but there mm. was a hiring freeze at the time. So my only two choices were AccuWeather, where I got the offer. Joel was one of my professors um, mm. and offered me the job. And my other choice was at the South Pole. So <laughs> State College was cold enough. I didn't need to get any colder or more alone. So uh, I stayed there and uh, learned a lot about forecasting from, from all of those folks. Yeah, that's, I, I think it's a very good choice. You didn't go to the South Pole. Who knows <laughs> where you might have gone from there. Um, but I, um, I think I remember seeing jobs like that available when I, I, I came out of Millersville and had my degree. And, you know, you're thinking, what am I going to do? I, I think I remember seeing jobs available like that. I'm not sure yeah. if you remember, Mike. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. And people who want to get into TV and in many cases over the years, you know, like you had to, one of my former interns, you had to start in Billings, Montana and right. stay there for six years. Yeah. But it pays off. He's been working in Miami on TV for years now. So, you know, you got to pay your dues one way or another, or at least for most of us. Yeah, that seems to be. And like you said, Glenn, you went to Penn State University, as did I. Um, and I think I even remember you coming to speak to our synoptic class um, and, and give a presentation for us. And I don't know if you did that on the regular or um, just for a little bit of time. But I did a few times. Um, mm. uh, Dr. John Neese is a good friend of mine. Uh, we used to do programs at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia mm. regularly, um, mm. maybe two, three times a week for years. So there, there were tens of thousands of kids that we uh, that we had talked to over the years. And he's invited me up in the past to uh, be a guest lecturer. Uh, mm. I've had other professors uh, invite me as well because they're is a branch of meteorology that is in broadcasting and it's helpful sometimes to get people who are actually involved in that part of the business to help teach it rather than people who've never been on TV or mm -hmm. at least not commercial TV. There's a big difference between that and the educational TV uh, type. Yeah, and that's the thing that's a little bit different about our company here at Weatherworks. We're more in the <laughs> private sector, and there's a lot to be doing on that side, too, where we're giving forecasts to uh, state road departments, uh, county road departments, uh, even uh, NFL teams and uh, other sports teams in the stadiums. So there's a lot there um, also in the private industry that I think a lot of people don't maybe don't realize when they're going to school. Um, you know, they always think um, broadcast meteorology mm -hmm. or, or, uh, or research or, or something like that. Um, but there's yeah. a lot more to meteorology than people might think. Yeah, ab absolutely. And some people make the mistake of just thinking uh, one way, uh, meteorology, TV, you know, because they... <laughs> right. 
you grow up and you're watching the local TV person. And that's one of the reasons I became a meteorologist uh, watching the greats in Philadelphia back in the 50s and early 60s. And Wally Canan, the weatherman, he was my favorite. <laughs> and Dr. Francis Davis was also on. Those are two of the first three AMS holders in the entire country. Philadelphia has a really rich tradition of professional meteorologists. And a lot of us were inspired, including Joel and Elliot and, mm -hmm. and some others in the Philadelphia area by these TV people. But we're not all cut out for television <laughs> and it's a tough business. And you know, even though I was considered a success, I, I've lost uh, three jobs over the years, been mm -hmm. on unemployment, uh, <laughs> not knowing where, where the future was going to be moving from city to city, you know, it's a tough part of the business to be in. And right. originally it not only was the most glamorous, but it was also the highest <clears throat> paying. Now yeah. coming out of college, my understanding is it's the lowest paying. It is <laughs> profession, a part of meteorology. So my advice to, to kids always always was i don't recommend tv unless you can't imagine yourself doing anything else mm -hmm. you have to have so much dedication and drive right. to this, including the ability to do it uh, because even if you're good you're going to be getting some nightmares and <laughs> um, science and news do not necessarily go together that's right. Bad. And and just to your point earlier, you mentioned, uh, you know, you had to go out to where was that? Uh, Idaho or something in Montana. Yeah, Montana. Yeah. I mean, when you're 22, 23, come out of college, I mean, you don't have that TV experience yet other than maybe just an internship, which, again, I, I went that route for a while. And you're going to have to go to a 200 size market or, you know, uh, before you can move up to top 100 market, any top 50 market. And eventually, you know, you get into the the bigger money, but like you said, I mean, a lot of these kids they come out of college and they're going to go out to Montana and make twenty five thousand dollars a year, and you know, to them I guess it's a lot, but you got student loans to pay, you got this to pay, and you're brand new in a new city. It's it doesn't it, it quickly uh, you know you find out that this isn't this isn't paying the bills yet. So. Yeah, you can't afford to do that. And and the other negative thing about it is that in these small markets. There's nobody to learn from. It's it's way, way better to be a small fish in a big pond, mm -hmm. um, at least with the right meteorologist as the chief, and to get to one of those stations where you can get experience, but you could also learn just sure. by watching uh, some of the professionals. But if you're in Billings, Montana, who are you going to be watching? Who you can right. be learning from, and, and like you said, it's it's a tough business. It's, it's a lot of folks don't. Of course, the you know the the, the highlight of it is oh, I get paid to be on television. I get paid to do weather mm -hmm. on television. Wow! But as soon as that you know the red light goes off and you're you're done, 
you know, it's the contracts, it's the uh, consultants that come in every six months. Yeah. You know, you're only good as a contract. You have a three year contract. There's no guarantee you, you're going to work on that first day of fourth year. Like you said, you've lost job. I have too. It's 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 the part of the business that isn't very elegant. So yeah, but um, even with let's say that three year contract, in most cases, that's not guaranteed. And in most cases, they have what they call windows after each year, where the station could get rid of you on your anniversary. And I remember in New York, um, I got replaced there that's where i got the nickname and i thought things were going well and then all of a sudden i get canned and they brought in a guy i think from indiana moves his whole family to new york and then lasted 13 weeks oh my goodness and, and he obviously had a window that was pretty small and they took advantage of it and who i i don't know what happened to him but that's mm. just one of those horror yeah. stories that you can run into. So let me let me back up a little bit because you just mentioned about your nickname, Hurricane. Um, so how did that all come about? How did that get stuck on you as far as? <laughs> yeah, well, I have been fascinated by hurricanes for uh, much of my life. I wanted to be a meteorologist since the fifth grade. Mm -hmm. um, I did end up after AccuWeather going to the National Hurricane Center, which got me even more focused on hurricanes. Mm. And I ended up in Atlanta with the National Weather Service and being discovered on TV doing a interview live on the 11 o'clock news as Hurricane Frederick. <laughs> was coming up the coast. They didn't have any meteorologists at that particular Well, what state. year is this? I'm sorry. 79. 79, okay. Yeah, Frederick did quite a bit of damage uh, along the Gulf Coast. Hmm. And it was heading toward Atlanta. It was their top story. They didn't have a meteorologist, so they uh, contacted me. I was kind of the spokesman at the Weather Service, the disaster preparedness meteorologist. And so I went on and uh, talked about Frederick, and the next morning, the news director called up and offered me a job in TV. He said, how'd you like to uh, be on TV? And this was starting in Atlanta. But wow. anyway, I already had this interest in hurricanes. I was on TV in Atlanta for four years, then went to Cincinnati, then lost that job. Mm -hmm. And then came back to Atlanta to work at the Weather Channel. And this was only uh maybe three years in uh to the start of the weather channel and they were doing nothing uh as far as taking pictures of actual weather all they showed were weather maps and satellite pictures and mm. then their local forecast that was the big deal that's interesting because nowadays if you go to the weather channel there's a bunch of different shows about storm yeah. stories and, and and what have you and so it's made a big pivot from what it used to be just the basics to now including all kinds of impacts. Yeah. Originally, uh, the head engineer, they came up with this local forecast technology so that you could get your own neighborhood forecast on the eights, uh, let's say. Yeah, sure. Well, their, their line was the weather is the star. Mm -hmm. 
So they okay. called this system the Weather Star. And oh, I, I got gotcha. you. Right. I had already been on, on TV for years, and I'm I'm seeing the amateurish uh, way that they were presenting weather, mm. and it got very frustrating. I was working on a hurricane documentary there um, with the uh, National Science Foundation, and I was compiling video as much as I could. There's not much back then. Mm -hmm. And then Labor Day weekend comes up, and there's a hurricane that's about to hit the Gulf Coast. And it's, it's, we're in Atlanta. I'm, we're only six hours away. Let's go shoot <laughs> Let's go. The, the thing. Well, the big bosses were out of town uh -huh. for Labor Day uh -oh. weekend. So it was a lower-level guy who approved it so the the photographer who had only done promo type stuff we didn't even have a vehicle we went and rented a station wagon okay. the two of us and drove down to pensacola to shoot this video to for the documentary and this was hurricane elena in 85 and it stalled so we had to complete the job and that took another couple of days and then it started moving toward tampa and then we drove to tampa and started shooting stuff there and the tampa airport was closed because of flooding even though the hurricane was way offshore so we had to drive to orlando to hand the videotape to an airplane to fly back to atlanta oh my gosh then drive to tampa shoot some more video drive back to orlando put that tape on the plane that kind of stuff <laughs> That, so anyway, I got to put some of that in my documentary. And then yeah. when I went to New York after that, I showed some of that video just before weather. And then the hmm. anchorman said, well, and now here with the weather is Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. So it was wow. just right on a, a spare the moment. Nobody talked about it ahead of time. There was no focus group or uh, advertising in a <laughs> consultant who suggest it just happened and uh, those are the best kind of nicknames when they're it's based on reality yeah and right. the very next day i mean i i had a cop yelling at me across the street hey hurricane so i knew it was going to stick wow that's amazing that's that, a great how, story yeah i mean and, Did and, you eventually get in trouble, or was it okay? <laughs> well, I, as a matter of fact, when we got back, we we, we chased Elena for like a week and put 3,000 miles on the car, I believe. <laughs> and we had done phoners. Yeah. You know, you couldn't do anything live back then. So I get back, and yeah, we, they were not happy with me and mm. until they saw the ratings. And then all of a sudden, it's, well, maybe we should be doing this. And so that's how it all started. So the next big hurricane that's headed toward the U.S., yeah, let's send Schwartz down and uh, get blown around again and uh, <laughs> juice the ratings a, a little bit. And then I used the kid that, you know, they started with that, and then they start chasing snow flurries. Because, <laughs> you know, chase everything yeah right right that's that's i mean they're known for going down 
and, and being in hurricanes and, and being in snowstorms and 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 it's just interesting to hear that story of how it all developed and how you were a part of that yeah and of course it was really difficult in those days there were no cell phones we didn't have any kind of satellite capability mm. i i would have to literally go into a phone booth and call up the weather channel to give a, a live phone report <laughs> and the, the closest I came to getting injured was in Mobile uh, during that Elena chase. And I was either going in or going out at a phone uh, phone booth in the downtown area. And a piece of flying glass kind of raised me just uh, above the eyebrow. Ooh, uh, wow. So, you know, that was a little bit of a close call. But there's nobody on the roads and we're driving across... Uh, I-10 in the middle of the night trying to chase Elena because it had gone toward Tampa, stalled there, and then turned around all of a sudden and went back toward New Orleans. So we mm. had to get in the car and try to outrace it to get to the central Gulf Coast before it hit. So we're racing through there in the middle of the night. There's tornadoes uh, <laughs> developing, and we're seeing the power lines flash. And sure. we're going over to Bridge and Mobile Bay. And are you going uh, along I 10 down there? If something happens, yep. If something happens, we're done because there's Jeez. nobody there to help us. Um, so wow. it was a pretty exciting um, week there. And it, you know, it worked out. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's so much different nowadays where it seems like if there's any weather event going on, there's so many people on their phones and social yeah. media that you see uh, a tornado on Twitter before, you know, anything ever comes of it. So you're on a payphone or wherever you yeah. were trying to communicate that weather. And now we can have that in an instant on social media. You know, yeah. Mike, that's a, that's a good point you bring up because when I was, I was down in Charleston, you know, I did weather down there for a while and the news director out of the blue wanted to send me down to Lady Lake, Florida. Uh, they just had a tornado outbreak down there, like the day before the Super Bowl. I can't remember what year this was, like 2004, maybe 2005. And when I got down there, it looked like the Super Bowl was actually happening where this tornado outbreak was. There, there were so many sat trucks. There were so many <laughs> news groups. I mean, they came from everywhere. I mean, it was it was a big one, too. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, were killed. But, I mean, it, it, it looked like, I mean, there were so many just i can't i couldn't believe the expansive news i mean cnn was there you know fox news was there i mean all the big ones including of course all the local tv and i don't know why they sent me down there from charleston i wanted some content for something but i'll tell you it was amazing and like you said that was 15 something years ago i mean now it's just like even you know every like you said every everything's documented today it doesn't matter where it happens yeah but we don't need the giant satellite trucks uh, as much right but you know, if you just shoot it on a cell phone, and back then, uh, as I was saying, we didn't have a satellite truck, but a couple stations did. So, as Elena was still stalled off of Tampa, there were tornadoes hitting around the Orlando area, and one caused a lot of damage. So, we drove from Tampa to Orlando to shoot some of the tornado stuff and interviews some people who went through it and 
there was a TV local TV station there, Orlando station shooting it. And I'm talking to the guy and saying, uh, well, well, I got to get to the airport to put this table on a plane. He said, well, you know, we have a satellite dish. We can send it up for you. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> Except we didn't have a receiving dish at the Weather Channel. So oh. we still had to go to the airport and put it on a plane. Oh, man. That's a shame. It's it's interesting to hear about those early days. I'd like to switch over, yeah. though. Let's focus on the I-95 quarter. Let's focus on uh, snowstorms. Let's focus on that aspect. Because when you went from Atlanta, then you eventually went up to NBC10 in Philadelphia. Um, and that's where I remember you mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, let's talk about that. First off, I mean, what is the allure of that big snowstorm uh, along the I-95? It seems like everybody wants to know about it. They want to be the first to know about it. They hear it from their grandmother's aches and pains that there might be a two-foot snowstorm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming up. But what do you think it is about it that's just so intriguing to people? Well, it's it's something that happens, but it doesn't happen a lot. Hmm. And I had been forecasting in Atlanta, remember, for a while. And I was there in, uh, I think it was 82, when there was a little snow and ice <laughs> just a little glaze and shut the whole city down. So, mm. it, you know, people would talk to me about Philadelphia and and uh, New York and how everybody freaks out about, mm. you know, a few inches of snow. I said, you ain't seen nothing. You got to go down <laughs> south and watch them freak out over snowflurs. I was actually in Miami working on the radar, 1977, the first and only snow in Miami wow. um, and you talk about people freaking out uh, all the way down <laughs> the coast of Florida. So it's not unique to the I-95 corridor. One of the things that is unique is the difficulty in a forecast and the contrasts of the results. So I think people are fascinated by that uh, as well as the, the threat of the storm and the rarity of a big snowstorm is the idea that some of the people I'm talking to are getting rain. Some mm -hmm. people are getting ice. Some people are getting snow at the mm -hmm. very same time. Right. And we have to try to communicate all of that. Um, I was doing that in New York in, in the late eighties to 1990. So I had some experience with this, Mm -hmm. forecasting and pl plus going back to AccuWeather uh, in the 70s. So I'd been around this for quite a while. So I was familiar with the difficulties of uh, forecasting winter storms for the East Coast. And it's it's pretty funny to see some people, uh, meteorologists even, come in from other parts of the country and like mm. assume they know how to forecast winter <laughs> storms and just fall on their faces and embarrass themselves on TV. Um, I won't name names, but I could. Uh, it, it's a whole different atmosphere. It's not like forecasting in Chicago 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the amount of variability, like you said, that's probably part of it. I mean, even when I was a kid, you know, I didn't understand how weather worked at that point. And I, I just couldn't get it through my head as like, how can it be raining on the New Jersey yep. shore? And then it's snowing like crazy up here. And then why is it 19 degrees and my snow just changed <laughs> to sleet and freezing rain? Right. Like, I was how could this be possible? Yep. <laughs> it's the so cold. Yeah, the ultimate example of this was uh, the March 58 snowstorm where the snowfall totals in our area range from like two inches in Atlantic City to 50, five zero inches in Chester County. Wow. Shut down the turnpike, they had to do helicopter rescues. And here in New Jersey, it's got a couple inches of snow. So yeah. the most accurate forecast for that storm would have been snow ranging from two to 50 inches tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, so even if you forecast it perfectly, people are not going to be happy about yeah, it. You can't forecast a gradient like that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And, and even in storms like um, the 96 blizzard and, and, and the one that we had not long ago, I believe in, uh, I believe it was 2016. 16. Yeah. Yes. Um, both similar type storms. And you had a giant gradient of, mm -hmm. you know, 20 to 30 inches in places like the Lehigh Valley, but you go up to Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area in Pennsylvania, and they had just a few <clears> inches. <throat> and that's only a matter of 40, 50 miles, something like right. that. So you, and, you not only have your rain snow line that you have to worry about in many of the storms, but also the northern edge of the heavier snow like you were talking about. So it, it's not even as simple as trying to figure out where the rain snow line is going to be um, and how that's going to vary. And like you said, at, uh, sleet at 19 degrees, <laughs> that was happening during the 96 blizzard uh, at one point. And I believe it was uh, the, the 83, the, what, the, what they... 93, the, the storm of the century. Superstorm, yeah, superstorm. Yeah, the storm of the century where we got a foot of snow in Philadelphia plus a tremendous amount of ice. And then west of Philly, it got tremendous amounts of snow. So it wasn't known as the big snowstorm in Philly, even though it was plenty cold enough to mm -hmm. be all snow. It just warmed up aloft, and that was it. It's and such I, a strong storm. Yeah, it just it provide it produced its own warm air in the mid levels and upper levels. So, and then that was the one Mount Mitchell got the most, right? It was like fifty-two inches or something like that. Yeah, they they were stranded hikers. Yeah, on the Appalachian wow. Trail. Um, you know that was unbelievable. There was a foot of snow in northern Alabama. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. that going up to Canada. So. Uh, but that's not necessarily one that's real memorable for people around the, the Philly and, and toward uh, South Jersey. So each storm is memorable in different ways for different people in different parts of the area. And um, it, it's really amazing how you predict a storm and you'll get some phone calls or 
texts or letters or whatever saying <laughs> you people uh hype everything you know you're predicting you know eight inches and we only got four and then we'll yeah. get a letter saying you people missed this one you only said four and we got eight you know <laughs> you think so <laughs> you if you get an equal amount of you you suck uh comments that <laughs> oh, yeah. gotten it right yeah, the nor'easter is the most notorious uh, storm to forecast here uh, from the mid-Atlantic to New England. And those variations just can't make anybody happy because, you know, it's all of those, where does that heavy snow band set up? Does right. it set up northwest of 95? Does it set up on 95? Does it set up out in central Pennsylvania? Wherever it happens, you're going to get crushed. Yeah, Wherever a 50 that's... mile difference in track, uh, west to east. You know, yeah, if it yeah. just goes one way or the other, of course, yeah, that's going to have and, a huge impact on the amount of snow and ice everyone gets. Yeah, and and then those biggest snowstorms. The the fortunate thing was, you know, there's basically the two types. Um, it goes back to Cosin and Uccellini and their, mm -hmm. um, what I call it the the, the Bible. Uh, uh, where there's the uh, track A, where the storm forms, yep. let's say, in the Gulf of Mexico or near the Gulf Coast and comes up at us, those are the easier ones to forecast. And it fortunately, the I was just looking it up, the four biggest snowstorms in Philadelphia history were all type A's. Mm. So the forecast for those storms were pretty accurate overall. The toughest one is those clippers coming in from the west or northwest, the type B storms, and then redevelop off the east coast and intensify. And there's a, a very sharp edge between no snow and heavy snow mm -hmm. from south to north. And that's what happened with the so-called storm of the century in 2001 where oh, right. everybody blew it, including uh, Paul Cosin on the Weather Channel predicting 30 inches of snow in Philadelphia. And we ended up with one. Wow. Um, so the biggest bust, the biggest challenge are those type B winter storms. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that. I remember the one winter where I was forecasting a lot in um, in New England here at Weatherworks, um, where they had a hundred some inches over the season, um, and it seemed like it was a Miller B almost every other day <laughs> <laughs> that we were watching this clipper come across mm -hmm. the country, and then it was mm -hmm. going to explode once it hit the the coast and run right up there and i always remember this is where i got one of my nicknames at uh at <laughs> weatherworks they like to call me the hammer um <laughs> because i would start the forecast at a, a general 6 to 12 and it just looked like there was so much upside and then by the time the storm was getting closer and closer i was increasing my amounts and increasing my amounts and then pretty soon we're looking at 18 to 24 and, <laughs> and they're going Mike, well there's the like yeah, there's Mike the Hammer again. That's um, what I was doing in 96. I mean, nobody's <laughs> starting off a prediction of uh, of 30 inches. But right. I remember before 
I, I guess it was the Saturday night uh, during the storm, mm. or just the, the storm started. I I predicted twenty to thirty. The yes. all-time record in Philadelphia was twenty-one point three, and and I had <laughs> kept raising the forecast amounts to the point where I did twenty to thirty. Uh, and much to the uh, delight of me, as I was watching the <laughs> right <laughs> as a uh, kid, I'm going, going yes, twenty to thirty. I love this, this guy. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, or the day before on Friday, the and models backed off a little bit on the storm mm. and the weather service backed off on this forecast. And it, uh, one of the lessons that I had learned tracking storms in New York was, you know, it's the pattern. The pattern is first. Mm -hmm. The models are second. Mm -hmm. So if the model is changing and there's no reason for it to change, I wasn't going to back off. And that's where I really, I think, helped get a reputation because everybody else was backing off. The other right. meteorologist at, at the station actually went to the news director to complain about me for hyping the storm. Mm. This was on Friday. The storm starts on Saturday. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, the news director you know, back me and, and they didn't, nobody ever tells me what to forecast. Um, and then, you know, there's the result. And those dramatic major forecasts and major storms, those are the things that people remember sure. and it gives them the impression of accuracy. My, one of my sayings is accuracy is not about numbers. It's about perception. Mm. So if you can, especially early on, I was able to get this particular storm at least better than anybody else. No, nobody's going to get it just right. Sure. Right. Um, and there are people who remember that just like it's amazing. When I started at Channel 10, I had a, a uh, mustache. Mm. I shaved that mustache just a few years later. Let's say it's 2000. People still to this day ask me, Where, what, where's your mustache? <laughs> what happened to your mustache? <laughs> when people make early decisions about you in many ways, whether they like you or how you look, but also about your credibility, your uh -huh. forecast ability. And I've seen meteorologists, degreed meteorologists, lose their credibility within weeks of starting a job. Okay. A big system that gets blown and you never recover from it. Yeah, my, my old uh, chief... Um... I worked for in Charleston, Bill Walsh. He was, he's still there. He's been there for 30 years. And, mm -hmm. and of course they don't deal with winter storms like we do, but their big thing of course is tropics and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And he said a bad hurricane forecast, if one's approaching or threatening could make or break a TV station. Um, yeah. Whether you've been number one forever or, you know, you have a bad one or people remember that, like you said, and they'll remember that for years. And so of course, Hugo was a big one down there. And right. uh, I think that kind of what started, 
mild station where they're number one and they've been number one, but they did such a great job with Hugo back in 89 that it's just stuck there. And that's how it's been. Yeah. And my best friend uh, over the years was Jim Reeve, uh, who worked in Fort Myers, uh, fortunately passed mm -hmm. away, but he would became extra famous for uh, Hurricane Charlie, where the Hurricane right, Center was... predicted it to go up toward Tampa. Yeah, I remember that. Made a right turn in Florida, yeah. Myers, and he was the first one to talk about that and, and predict that. And so he's the guy. He's the guy who got Charlie right. Now, maybe he only beat the competition by one hour or something right. but, it's, <laughs> but it's just like in the news the competition to be first mm -hmm. um right this just in this exclusive uh and in some of those individual cases it really does make a difference who's first um right but that also gives some meteorologists a little push to try to be first and so to go out on a limb too soon make a, a over commitment too soon and then how do you back off right if you're wrong yep yeah so all of that and then how you handle it afterwards how you handle the criticism mm. is also part of the reputation thing yeah, I've always found that trying to back off a forecast is much, much worse <laughs> than saying you're going to see more snow, um, at least when communicating to our clients. Um, and I think that might be the trouble with communicating weather forecasts in general, because a lot of people want to see deterministic type stuff. Like you yeah. are going to get five and a half inches of snow in you know yes. uh, how much for my neighborhood exactly yep. exactly in this spot whereas it's almost impossible to do that exactly <laughs> but then you fight that on social media too um, with with yes. the you know right oh you know, look at the worst case scenarios gfs you know, 14 days out three feet of snow for new york city i mean how do you it's ridiculous yes we we should ban the gfs after <laughs> uh, 96 hours um <laughs> You that know, it was true. part of my what what helped me over the years was my early discovery uh, of the skill of the European model. And again, back in the 90s, it was hard to get. You had to pay um, a lot of money to get access to any of the European data. Mm -hmm. The GFS, of course, that is available to everybody hour by hour. That's what the consultants had for their uh, maps that you put on TV. And so there's just this psychological tendency to be over-reliant on the GFS, on the American mm -hmm. models. And to this day, it happens. And I think part of the weather service problem is well, we work for the U.S. government. We have to trust the U.S. government models first and, and not admit that we're inferior, which causes them mistake after mistake after mistake. And over the years helped me with decision making when I was going to be going against 
what the GFS was coming out with. Like, for sure. example, with the 96 Blizzard, I didn't have a, a European model, but I had already not had faith in the GFS. You know, <laughs> the, it backs off, it, it suppresses the storm, and now all of a sudden you're not going to get it. But the overall pattern didn't change. It's just that stupid model right. did. And <laughs> the ultimate example was Superstorm Sandy. Oh, yeah, and of course, yeah. You had the GFS in run after run after run, taking the thing out to sea. And yep. the European consistently complete opposite. some kind of version of a left turn. Yeah, and some and, version of a landfall on most of those, right. too. And, and when I went on the air and talking about the threat of Sandy um, making landfall in New Jersey days in advance, I got ridiculed quite a mm. bit, uh, even by some uh, competitors on TV and on social media about calling it hype and, you know, doing it for ratings and all that stuff. And I remember watching one of them on, uh, I just happened to be in the newsroom for a few minutes and, and see this forecast and being so sure that it's going to be out to sea and accusing others of hype. Mm -hmm. I said, you don't do that before the storm hits. Wait till <laughs> after to criticize them. And, and and you and you can't celebrate too soon either. No. About, hey, I was the only one that predicted this big storm. And everybody else then came on board. Okay. And then it didn't happen. So there you were bragging about your forecast before the storm. And so now you're famous for blowing it, even though everybody blew it. Well, I think that uh, comes back to your pattern discussion a little bit, too. Rather than just model watching um, and shifting with whatever those models are doing, look at that pattern. Does that pattern make sense to what the storm track is showing you? And when you saw a big trough of low pressure just diving in behind the track of Sandy to the west through the Ohio Valley, you could kind of see how that would interplay with the track and how it would kind of suck in and merge with that trough. So it made sense, at least to us here in the office, um, that, okay, maybe that track that comes further west and makes a landfall isn't so crazy after yeah. all. And we should really give it a thought, especially like you said, Glenn, with the European model being so consistent about making that left turn, making some sort of landfall from whether it was from Cape Cod or down to the Delmarva, somewhere it seemed to be honing in on that situation being the most likely. Well, my re recollection with the pattern was the high pressure up over mm. the North Atlantic and how strong it was. Right. And that was the, the main anomaly. Mm. And as I'm looking at that, and then I see the European with the left turn solution. Okay. Here's the reason it's because right. of that, that high pattern and recognition. And the other part of it is when you have a model predicting something rare, 
and predicting it consistently, and there's a pattern favorable for that, that's when you jump on it. Because its tendency or any kind of model tendency is going to be toward what is so-called normal. And you can say, well, we, we haven't seen a left turn in a hundred years. And if, well, I go back to my snow in Miami. Yeah, sure. it never snowed in Miami before either, but if the conditions are right, it can. So that's, that was an early lesson on uh, on that. We had a conference call with all the NBC stations um, days before Sandy hit all the stations up down the East Coast from Miami up to Boston. And the head of the network-owned stations was uh, doing the call. And she was going up the coast. Um, start with Miami, you know, what's your evaluation and then go. And I didn't think that there was enough urgency given by some of the others briefing it. And when she asked me, she says, well, what's the worst case scenario? <laughs> I said, the worst natural disaster in the history of this area. Um, you got to let them know what the potential is behind the scenes right. and make sure they don't hype it and get out in promos and stuff like that. Cause that makes you look bad too, even though the words aren't coming out of your mouth, but you still have to sometimes go to a, an extreme with a, uh, an estimate. Right. And that's what, you know, you had to do. And one thing that really stuck in my head is, is our CEO uh, of Weatherworks, uh, Frank Lombardo, you know, he was doing, you know, weather since 1986. And uh, when he started the company and even before that, too, um, much like yourself. And when I asked him, like for his opinion on like how bad do you think things will be you know we have a 940 something low that's going to make landfall somewhere around atlantic city you know, like what are your feelings on this from your experience and he goes well i never saw this before <laughs> <laughs> so like i know what is you know, all the things with the wind and, and the potential coastal flooding and the surge. Um, but I've never saw this before in my career. So that's when I was kind of like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think we need to be even more dire. Right. Um, in our yeah. How extreme do you talk about it? How, how much do you want to scare people? Right. Uh, to get them to evacuate, for example. Part of the problem was what happened the year before. Uh, oh, that's a snow. Oh, that was Irene. Irene, that's right. That's right. It mm -hmm. came up the coast, which yeah. is tip, more typical track. And I was not happy with the, I, the suggestion to evacuate all of Cape May County. Mm. I remember that distinctly. Like, why are they doing this? And then Governor Christie, I believe, in New Jersey, is freaking out 
about surfers on the beach in, in New Jersey the day before the storm's going to hit, like they're going to die in a, in a matter of hours. Uh, you know, the, the sun's out. <laughs> the, the overreaction to Iran really hurt Damn. for the huh. next year. And, and that made people underreact and underestimate Sandy, despite what we were saying. And that was a much different storm, too, when you're talking about the track. You're talking about the yeah. size of Sandy yep. um, and all the water it would be, would be pushing directly into the coastline, almost perpendicular. Uh, yep. um, totally different setup. Uh, you're getting several high tide cycles to raise those water levels. Um, and... You know, we went down as a company afterwards to help out with some relief efforts. And it was amazing to see how much beach erosion happened, how much of these houses were destroyed, how high the water levels were in houses. Uh, when you went in there and you pulled out some of these you know, personal items for, from people, it was just amazing. Now, just um, remember, Sandy was weakening as it approached hmm. the coast. Now, picture a Sandy-type storm 10 years from now, 20 years from now, with significantly warmer ocean temperatures mm -hmm. off the Jersey Shore. And maybe it doesn't weaken so much. I still believe it was a hurricane at landfall. The local weather service who, who was doing this even before me, uh, and he was their hurricane uh, specialist, He's convinced also that it was indeed a hurricane. It should go down in history as a hurricane, not mm. quote superstorm, because it was a hurricane throughout its history that right. hit New Jersey. So a hurricane hit New Jersey, uh, just right. like Agnes in '72 was a tropical storm then to a tropical depression when it caused the worst flooding in Pennsylvania history. All but right. when it hit Florida, it was a hurricane. It goes down in history as Hurricane Agnes. This, this thing should be called Hurricane Sandy and not right. Superstorm Sandy. That's a good point for the perception of it. Uh, that's for sure. Um, because right away, when you take the hurricane moniker off the storm, it, it certainly seems to bring less of a, um, I don't know, notoriety to it. Notoriety, yeah. Well, look what happened in New York. When that happened, when it, when it supposedly weakened, uh, Mayor Bloomberg gets on TV, and again, this is something else on I, I can't forget, <laughs> is it, saying that you know, basically we've got good news here. The storm is weakening. And I'm yelling at the TV, <laughs> shut up. Let your experts tell, tell the people about the storm. What the hell yeah. do you know about hurricanes? That was definitely a bad choice of words. <laughs> yeah. The storm was weakening. You're, oh, my. Yeah. Oh, wrong perception for sure. Right. Communication and, is just as important as right. the accuracy of the forecast. Um, yep. And that's one of the most difficult things I would say in meteorology is communicating the weather properly. 
um, to your clients or to the public or whoever your audience may be, uh, you know, that's the one skill that is very hard to master. It's almost like an art more than a science right. of and how you can. I think that's what has helped me over the years where I've been very cognizant of that. And I, I think about it before the weather cast or before any kind of tweet or, or blog that I would write because what you want to do is emphasize it when you have high confidence and then pull back when you have lower confidence, Low confidence yeah. you don't treat every weather cast the same mm -hmm. as you're saying deterministic type right like, okay we're going to get this snowstorm here and uh, it's going to be six to ten inches well maybe yes. you're too soon to say that <laughs> and also maybe you're too sure saying that right so for example i might say a show a map saying um, here's the percentage chance of six inches or more mm -hmm. uh, on a different map, high, medium, low. Right. Okay. I didn't predict a specific number because I'm not ready for it. And there might be pressure to do it. The competition might have already done it. Even the weather service has done it. But I'm interested in the long-term credibility and not just any individual storm. Um, and, and when I'm sure about something, I just jump on it. And that's one thing that, that we do like to incorporate too, is that percentage or statistical mm -hmm. type analysis right. of an event. Typically when we send our forecasts out, we like to, break out into maybe four or five different percentage groups of, right. hey, we think 20% at one to three, 30% uh, uh, at you know three to six and 50% at this range. Um, we like to outline that range of possibilities for people. Now, maybe some don't like it as much. A lot don't like it. <laughs> but yeah. you know, we still say that we think the most yeah. likely scenario is four to eight inches. Right. Um, but we want to still explain that there is a range of possibilities here where this can go one way or another based on a, a 20 mile shift in track here. Yeah. Um, and people, so many people don't understand that mm -hmm. and don't accept that. And even smart people, even people at the tops of government, uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times they say, all right, I don't want to hear about that. Just tell me what you think, how much are we going to get where's the hurricane going to hit okay we know you might be wrong just tell me we don't want to hear about this probability business and it it just happens all the time it happens with snowstorms it happens with hurricanes um and it will never be solved that problem will never be solved what has made things more difficult in a way is that back when I started, let's say on TV, um, and predicted something for the weekend and was wrong, people wouldn't get mad at me because they didn't expect me to be right <laughs> in, in, in like a three or four day forecast. Right. Now, the accuracy has gone up to such a degree, you know, government, private, 
TV, everywhere, that people have an expectation of accuracy and they alter their plans because of it. So when their forecast busts, now they have been personally hurt by that. Whereas mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago, they weren't because they didn't believe us. So that makes them angrier when we're wrong today than they have in the past. I was, went to the Phillies game um, and rain had been predicted for a few days, even up to the day of the game. And the crowd is unusually small because mm. forecasts have scared them away. And then they get to play the game and people are are mad sitting at home like, hey, I bought tickets for this game and I didn't go because you people told me it was going to rain. They remember that stuff too. Did, did you did you ever watch the show Curb Your Enthusiasm? Oh, of course. Yes. Do you remember that episode when the uh, golfing? Yes. Yeah, the, the weather guy on TV was kept, he kept on predicting rain for the weekend so the golf course would be empty. And he knew it. It's like, you did this on purpose. Right. <laughs> I mean, yes, people do believe that there's some kind of a curse or whatever. There was actually a forecaster that I work with at the Hurricane Center who um, did love to uh, go golfing. And he would predict rain for the day that he was going to golf because he was convinced that if he predicted rain it wouldn't oh i, I see i got like it. he was, was cursed <laughs> <laughs> so if he predicted a nice day it's going to rain and he's going to get screwed um yeah i even referred to this as the hank silsby effect where <laughs> this there gets go. into our mind as forecasters um, right. it, it, it does it to me it, with sports too, sure. um, kind of make predictions, you know, like I don't want to, I don't want to put money on the Eagles winning because <laughs> if I do, then they're more likely to lose <laughs> thing with weather forecasting. Uh, it's, it's funny how your mind tricks you into things yep. like that. We, we even had a thing here at our company, uh, weatherworks where if our, um owner went on a vacation or oh, something yeah. like that mm -hmm. and it would seem like bad weather happened when he wasn't around like yeah, somehow he bill had henley. control of yeah. this yeah bill henley channel 10 <laughs> he was notorious we even <laughs> we even called it only occurred when he was on vacation <laughs> yeah Jeez. we even called it the flo we called yeah. it the flank frank lombardo oscillation because right. if he, if, yeah. so that if he went yep. to say Florida or something, or if he went on a trip somewhere really far away, well, then it's more negative, kind of like akin to the NAO. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so now we got to really be on high alert because uh, we might right. have a big, a big storm here on the way. And that clipper might actually bomb out on the coast on us. So <laughs> oh, it's funny about that. <laughs> Well, Glenn, is there anything that you would like to talk about a little bit before we would close out this uh, podcast? You know, the one thing or... that we haven't uh, talked about was climate. Okay. Um, and, you know, the climate experts can talk about all of that. And, but as a weather forecaster, I would have to say that I have noticed the changes 
um, over the decades, and I have even adjusted my forecasts based on changes in the atmosphere. The, the extra water vapor that is mm -hmm. out there, um, the warmer ocean temperatures, the blocking patterns, yeah, the, the blocking uh, you know, the slowness of hurricane movement, the rapid intensification. Once you do have favorable conditions for hurricane intensification, I think that we've gotten to the point where the climate change issue is not just an overall issue uh, for the public, but it is an issue for weather forecasters also. And they should be keeping this in mind and just try to imagine what storms will be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Right. Uh -huh. It is interesting okay, to see, um, even with the latest hurricane seasons, how active they've been. Um, yeah, of course, and, you get and, this year, but I think this is more the dust, though. I don't, I, I think it was more drier. I, I think it's the oh, abnormal warmth in the North Atlantic. That's true, too. Yeah. It has killed the Bermuda High. Yeah, but when you're talking about these storms being, uh, you know, maybe more frequent or maybe stronger, there, there's stuff I see that just doesn't quite make sense to what you have learned in the past. Like when you have hurricanes almost continuing to intensify as they're making landfall yeah. in Florida, like uh, I believe uh, Hurricane Michael um, went down that road. Um, where it just kind of continued to intensify as it made the landfall. Um, and, and seeing a storm like Dorian um, mm -hmm. in the Bahamas and, and how powerful it was, I mean, it was am amazing to me to see this storm and <laughs> how strong it got. Um, and storms in the Eastern Pacific, like Patricia, uh, breaking records um, yeah. too for one of the strongest storms. Um, it, it, it don't always need us. Um, you know, that I always say the last people to go out the door in a TV station is going to, going to be the weather people. Um, <laughs> and as good as the computer models have gotten, mm -hmm. and it's made our jobs in a way less challenging, um, because they're so right. It's they're they used to be easy to beat. But now right, it's harder, yeah. harder to beat uh, the guidance, and I um, I called it back when I was with the Weather Service. I guess in the seventies, I I I called it the designated hitter effect, where mm. if you're a DH over and over and over again, then you're asked to play the field. You're not going to be as good. And we sit back here day after day after day and have this wonderful confidence in the models. And it's not going to be right all the time. And oh, if you're not ready, if you're not analyzing it like you used to, true. you're more likely yeah, to be you get rusty. You get rusty at forecasting. That's right, because it's not worth the effort for a lot right. of people. Um, there are... There aren't many people who have, you know, go to the detail that I do. Some of my coworkers over the years have just you know, just shake their heads like, why the hell are you doing this? 
<laughs> you know, for a couple of degrees. It's yeah. amazing. I mean, I, I do, I do <laughs> feel that same way. They are so good nowadays that um, it, it, it is easy to fall into that, you know, well, it, this is what it says. This is what it's telling me. That's what I'm going to forecast rather than leaning on your experience and saying, well, wait a minute. You know, there's a snowpack up north. Maybe that cold air drains more than what the model is saying. Maybe it gets colder um, than what's expected in some of these valleys. Um, um, there's a and, lot of that stuff that yeah, sort I, of gets forgotten. Um, yeah, I mean, I could I could remember times when you know I'm watching the snowfall reports go up and up and up. You know, take match my forecast and then i'm practically jumping up and down you know i'm i'm literally like i like i just hit a home run <laughs> and uh, you know it doesn't happen as often because because everybody's right yeah <laughs> so yeah it's not as good as if you're the only one right well yeah and sometimes it's more of a battle against the um what's being shared out on social media with model snowfall outputs and things like that um, where you're trying to battle that uh, against your forecast. Well, why is this guy mm -hmm. showing me 20 inches of snow mm -hmm. and, and your forecast is uh, 8 to 12? Well, because right. <laughs> right. that we is one celebrate model. in advance. <laughs> yeah. A message to every young meteorologist, do not celebrate before the storm is over. <laughs> and that is true. All right, Glenn, well, I'm really happy you came on the Weather Lounge podcast. I mean, it was really great talking to you. We have lots more to talk about in the future. So um, maybe we can have you back someday. Yeah. All right. Be glad to. I don't get the chances to talk about the weather yeah. as much anymore. Well, hey, uh, we are here anytime you want to talk more about the weather. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's what we do. <laughs> we we are all about it here on the Weather Lounge and and, and how it uh, affects everybody. So that's it for the podcast for this week, guys. So remember, we'll have a new episode every two weeks. And as always, visit weatherworksinc.com. And, uh, and we're also on social media at Visit Weatherworks. And um, also, if you get a chance... Why not uh, look into some of Glenn Hurricane Schwartz's books? He has the Philadelphia Area Weather Book and the Weather Maker um, out there that you can read. So it's been a fun podcast, and we'll catch you again soon.